0: From Second Peter one through four. Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to who to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our master. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature and escape from the corruption of the world because of desire. Thanks, Stephen. Have you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Peter. Um. Last week we kind of dipped our toes into this awkward book of Second Peter. Um, if you're new with our faith family, this is kind of our rhythm that we tend to just kind of jump into scriptures for a season um, and spend in a book of the Bible um, some time trying to immerse ourselves in the world, um, trying to... Um, trying to kind of get our understanding and ideas around what was going on in that context so that we, therefore, can kind of let it apply to our context so that we can let it shape the way we think of God and how we live uh, in light of the revelation of Jesus. And so like, we really think that Scripture is that for us. It's it's something to to feed on, something to digest, that actually allows us to live life um, in a way that God has meant it for us to live it in a way that is full and pleasing um, to him, um, even in the midst of a world that seems like it's different than that, right? And so so we, at the beginning of summer, um, started First Peter and went through his first letter. Uh, then we took a, a little bit of a break and just ate together and looked at the meals that Jesus had um, and, and, and the welcome that Jesus extended to us at the table, um, on every table of a way to experience the kingdom of God. And now we're entering back into the, to Second Peter. And what we saw last week is that Second Peter um, is is odd in a lot of ways um, in our scriptural text. It's dubbed the ugly stepchild of the New Testament, um, an epistle whose oddity is accentuated in its dialect. It's, it's more Greek than it is Hebrew, um, which means it's more like the people who didn't grow up hearing the scriptures than, it does, than it's like the people who grew up hearing the scriptures, right? So it has more of a Greek flavor to it than a Hebrew flavor to it or Jewish flavor. Um, its structure is a bit odd, it's more direct and it is cordial, like it doesn't feel like, like his first letter that was, um, that was very much personal and written to them, um, talking about very personal things and naming people, inviting them into some kind of personal relationships and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of direct, he just jumps headlong into things and kind of gets the ball rolling and gets kind of going at them, um, which kind of makes sense as we saw last week because he knows that his time in life is short. And so he's writing it not to be cordial, not to be uh, one who's like, hey, here's some good things I want you to know, a foundation or things. He's like, no, like, this is it. This is all I've got left. I'm going to say it one last time to you so that when I'm not with you, you can remember the things that are of most importance, the things that, are, that, um, that you need to be, continue to be faithful. And it's, and it's also a bit odd in its content, because it seems to have more cultural illusions than it does scriptural references. Like there's not a lot of our scriptures directly referenced in Second Peter's letter, um, but there's a lot of words and phrases and ideas that he invokes that would have been. Um, on the top of the mind of the people that he's writing to, it would have been the stories and the phrases that they would have heard in their everyday activities. They would have heard growing up in their homes, um, told by their parents, told by whatever sort of education system that they were allowed to be a part of and all those kind of things. All the things that Peter says, he says in a way to kind of spark these, these almost cultural references and, in a way, tie them to scriptural things, but not as directly as some of us might, might like, right? Not as not as much as we like the first letter that ties everything back into a quote from Psalms here, or Isaiah here, or or whatever here. Peter doesn't do any of those things. In fact, the only time he actually quotes scripture is he quotes a proverb um, from, um, and ties the proverb in to a Greek proverb. <laughs> a proverb from our, our Bible in with a Greek proverb and actually makes them one proverb. And so... Peter's a bit odd, um, and sometimes I think we think this, this second letter is odd because we don't think of Peter as someone who could do this. We don't think of Peter as being, being able to contextualize very well. He, remember, he was kind of the dumb disciple, right? He's always the one that stuck stick his mouth in his foot, or his foot in his mouth. Like, yeah, that's, that's the way. Um, but that's, that's what we tend to think of Peter, right? Like, generally we think of Peter as kind of kind of a brute, a, a doof. Like, while he does some great things, he also fails tremendously, and so, But the reality is, part of the reason why Peter is always the one talking is probably because he actually had things to say. Like, he, he was pretty savvy, pretty smart. And so we tend to kind of put our stereotype of what we think of Peter onto this this letter. And so, again, it just adds to the oddity of it. Because, again, in his first letter, it's full of scriptural references, quotes and allusions. And there's these things these connecting the dots to what was going on in the history and the narrative of our scriptures of the Old Testament um, into the life of Jesus and into the life of the church was really important. It was super foundational for the men and women of his faith family that he was writing to. It was really important for them to understand and see how their life of faith and following Jesus' posture, his sharing in his suffering and service and sacrifice and submission one to another was the source of their hope. In the midst of a world that seemed against them, against hope, against hope, against the very ideas of what the gospel is. And it was also the hope of their community. The, that they were to be ones who, as he says in his, in the first letter, second chapter, um, who proclaim the excellencies of the one who drew them out of darkness and into to marvelous light, right? That they're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, right? That, they, that they're meant for something, and that something is to be a part of this God's redeeming story, this continuation of the scriptures into their life, into their world, into their context. But here in the second letter... Peter's intention is a bit different. It's not to lay a foundation, but rather to secure what is being built on that foundation. If, if you remember at all, in the, the in the letter to the Hebrews. Um, there's this, there's this point in the letter where the author writes, he's like, listen, I have so many things to tell you about the realities of Jesus and what Jesus does for you and who Jesus is for you. But I have a hard time getting to those things because I have to go back and keep building a foundation for you. I've got to keep going back and laying the foundation of what the scriptures have said and who Jesus is and all that kind of stuff. When really you just need to live on it, like you need to practice and develop the skills of discernment to live out the truth and the experience of what it is to know and follow Jesus. And Peter, in some ways, assumes the same thing for his readers. That he assumes that they have a secure foundation... And so what he wants for them as one who is going to depart this world rather soon, at least in tradition and history, is he wants what's being built on the foundation to be solid, to be, uh, as Paul would say in the letter to the Corinthians, not with built with straw and hay, but with, with jewels and gold and fine stones and things like that. Something that, that tests out well. Again, this is what Peter tells us. He says, I intend always to remind you, though you know and are established in the truth that you have, like, he's not going to say a whole lot that's new for us in, this, in, the, in the letter. Not a whole lot that's new for his hearers in the letter. But what he's going to do is he's going to try to take what they know and make it livable. Take what they know and draw it out into the fullness of life. Peter knows that his faith family's foundation is settled, and so he wants to make sure that what they are building on the foundation will last. And so Peter uses language, speaks a language that need no special interpretation nor required any looking up for the references of his faith family. He's not trying to, like, to like fill them with some sort of new knowledge of things. He's trying to help them see and bring to life the things that are foundational. And so he does it with language that's familiar. He does it with stories that, um, that, that would have been the stories that shaped their life, that he takes and kind of reworks and reshapes just a little bit and the revelation of Jesus, and who Jesus is. Peter names them in a way that they, that they are familiar with, that they can know themselves. And he also names their place and their purpose. All for the point of this, that, that they can live with clarity amidst the muddiness of the world as it is. That they can live clearly in the revelation of Jesus, in the faith of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, amidst the muddy world that is just everyday life, Right? A life that's, that's grown up in a context where like, it's not always clear who God is and what God is up to. It's not always clear of what faith requires of us. It's not always clear of what it means to live out the reality of Christ dead and alive and ruling and reigning now. And coming back one day to finish what he started. But Cl- Peter's desire is that they would get to experience the clarity of that. That, that they would continue in what he's been able to, to continue in as an apprentice of Jesus. And if we pay attention, we'll find that Peter, in his second letter, clears up the confusion for you and I as well. For as Calvin would say of uh, this book, even though he had lots of issues with it, as everybody else does, in every part of the epistle, the majesty of the Spirit of Christ appears. And that's that's really what we find. Uh, how many of you guys got to read Second Peter this week? If you're here last week, we said, hey, this week take it, read it all the way through. It's short. Yeah. Okay, there's some there's a few gold stars for later. Um, no, but but if you haven't done it, do it. It's it's three chapters. It's a few pages. It probably takes about 12 to 15 minutes for the average reader. 20 minutes if you're me. And you 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 can you can get the whole picture of this. But you cannot get through this book of, of Peter of Peter's without just, especially if you're reading it all together, without just hearing in a, the, over and over again this phrase, Jesus. You can't get away from Jesus in his short letter. Jesus drips from every sentence, paragraph, and idea. Jesus' desire and manner of living saturates every encouragement, every critique, and every exhortation. And you listen, you don't have to be a scholar to pull this out. Um, just, let's just go back into the first couple of verses that Stephen read for us a minute ago. Here's how the letter starts. It said, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of who? Of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained or received a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. <laughs> May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord or Master. Like right there, like we just get it, right? Like right on. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And if we think that it just stops there, we don't. The book actually concludes with this. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Master, and Savior, Jesus Christ. There he is again. To Jesus belong the glory now and um, to the day of eternity. Amen. Jesus begins and ends. Everything in between takes place within this reality. Everything, nothing in life is left out. Every aspect, idea, emotion, behavior, aspiration, hesitation, opportunity, obstacle, all occurs within the supreme life of Jesus' majesty. The majesty of Jesus alive, Jesus died, Jesus risen, Jesus alive and ruling, to which Peter and the apostles were witnesses. This is what he says in the end of chapter 1. He says, we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses to his, to Jesus' majesty. Majesty. Jesus' honor and glory received from God the Father. That's what they were witnesses to. They were witnesses to the honor and glory, the majesty, the splendor, the uniqueness, the aboveness of Jesus in human form. That his life, death, and resurrection, witnessed by Peter and the apostles, is is this crowning thing, is this, this lens by which they know themselves and they know how to operate and live in the world. It is the way that they know God. It's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we, too, know how to live. We, too, know God. We, too, can, as Peter will say in chapter four, or verse 4, become partakers of the divine nature, And escape from the corruption in the world because of desire. That's what Peter made sure his faith family understood was sobriety of mind and temperance of spirit. That's why he wrote the first letter. He, He made sure that they knew that this is what they received from Jesus. And by imitating Jesus, Jesus as master, when you read Lord in most of the translations, the idea there, again, is one that's master, one who you're apprenticed to, one who you're following and submitting to for the purpose of becoming like. It's not just a kingship idea. We'll talk about that in a little bit with the terms that, that Peter uses. But it's, it's the idea of master, one to follow and, and obey um, because you're abiding with, Right? But by imitating Jesus, our Master, we bring our life to faith and find that we will not be ineffective or unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus. And therefore, we'll make our calling and election secure, sure, ensuring that we won't fall in this life of faith. And that's, all, that's what we're after, right? And that's what Peter says he writes in the letter, to ensure that we won't fall in our life of faith, to ensure that our life committed to Jesus is not unfruitful and ineffective. In fact, it's this simplicity of the clarity that comes through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that makes this book so profoundly essential, and yet so predominantly missed. I mean, we say it all the time, right? Like, as believers, if you've been in the church for a while, like, listen, it's all about Jesus. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' is resurrection, it's the gospel, it's the good news. But, like, like, are we ever really satisfied with that? If we're honest, are you satisfied with that when life hits and the difficulty of life hits? Are we satisfied with Jesus, the beginning and the end? I think part of the simplicity of Peter's letter is why it's so odd. Think about it for a moment. Peter offers our faith family the most straightforward, non-pious, humbly confident, meekly defended, and an accessible, concise, and utterly exhaustive description of true religion. That's what he does. In the first 11 verses of his letter, he gives us everything that we need. It assumes that we have all that we need in Jesus. And yet, and yet, it's an ugly stepchild of the New Testament. A letter at the bottom of the list of favorite books in the New Testament. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that the book that's most straightforward about it begins and ends with Jesus? That Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is really all that we need in life of faith to live whole, full, well lives, even amidst a world that seems in opposition to it. Why do you think that that is? Could it be that maybe Jesus was right? That in in that most famous verse in all of our canon, when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life, right? That in that same breath, Jesus says that the father sent the son in order that the world might be saved through him that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light maybe the reason this book is so odd maybe even odd to us is that we aren't we don't like the simplicity of it we like the um, darkness the ignorance the shallowness the arrogance even the self-deception Of making life more complicated than Jesus. Not letting Jesus be the one that clears the way for our own lives. It's at least a question that I think we have to ask ourselves. Are we comfortable? Are we trusting? Are we satisfied with the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Or do we want something more? Peter's second letter is written to provide clarity amid the muddiness of daily life. It's written to those who recognize Jesus as the light of the world, the one who reveals what it means to be human fully, uniquely in relation to God. And in the clarity of Jesus, Peter contends we, are comp- we can confidently know how to live, how we can experience the abounding of grace and peace here and now and forever. If that is what we are after, then this letter is for us. If we want more, if we want more religion, more deception, more autonomy, more control, we'll miss out or misunderstand. And we'll twist Peter's letters to our own demise, as he kind of alludes to at the end of his letter. But if we are after Jesus, life with Jesus, then we'll find what we're after in his encouragements. And so Peter, knowing his time is short and assuming that his faith family is after Jesus, which I assume we are too, he jumps straight in. What Peter says so succinctly in the first four verses lays the groundwork for the rest of the letter, and I would argue for the rest of our lives. Like In the first four verses, he re-kind of just clears off the foundation, sweeps, sweeps anything else that might, be, that might kind of have gathered on it, says most succinctly what it is that we've been given, and then he launches straight into how we can live off of it. So let us jump to and look a little bit closer at what Peter is saying in these first four verses. These first four verses that, by the way, I was talking to a friend this week who, um, in his own kind of life of faith and development, like discovered Second uh, Peter in the first four verses. Second Peter, we weren't meaning to talk about this, it just happened in conversation, and um, and he said that, like, especially in verse 4, but this whole kind of first, first few verses of Peter, really just redirected his whole life of faith. Like really opened for him what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And so, like, so as simple as it may be, there's a lot of profoundness to what we're about to kind of unpack. And so, so like this, there's a plenty to chew on. So I'm going to go a little bit quickly, just for time's sake. But the idea is not for, you, for us to get an exhaustive understanding of what's happening in the first four verses. But to see it with enough clarity that as we go back in our days and weeks and meditate on, chew on, continue to digest this word from an apostle and a friend, a, a spiritual companion who wants us to know Jesus, that we'll be able to do so with a little bit of flavor on it, right? With a little, with it a little bit chewed up for us so that we can continue to let it sink into us. Because Peter assumed, again, that this was, has sunk into those that he's written to. and So he says it all as a way of reminder knowing that they'll always need to be reminded of these things, but that this is the thing in which they are built upon. So let's start off with just the beginning. Simon Peter, a servant. Now, we kind of just read over that really quickly, right? This is just a letter. It's just an introduction. But the word translated servant is better translated slave. And rightly so, um, if we were to use that word, it would carry a, a wrong connotation. Um, in our modern ears, right? Like it would have, it bring up all kinds of things that are evil and wrong and broken and twisted in humanity, in our lives, in our own experiences. But the term servant, so you can understand why the term has been translated servant in our modern, modern ear, but like it kind of does a disservice to us. The, the term service, it's not an expression of personal humility, right? We tend to think of somebody who is a servant as somebody who's kind of humble, lowly, willing to do um, the dirty work, right? Like that's kind of what we think of as a servant. Um, or maybe we have in the picture like a, low, a lower kind of career or whatever. Like, I don't know, we tend to kind of like, like level out the servant as someone kind of down here. Or on the other side, in kind of um, modern Christian world, we make, the, we make the idea of servant as a servant leader, that this is how they lead. They lead through service. But this term doesn't capture either one of those pictures not one trying to gain authority or exercise and demonstrate um, um, integrity through service, nor one who is simply just humble and so therefore serving, but rather it's an expression of a person totally owned by and devoted to another person. Totally owned by and devoted to another person, whose status is not his own, but one derived from his master. And so Peter is saying, I am unknowable, I exist not, except through Jesus. I am unknowable. I exist not, except through Jesus. And that's a pretty deep commitment to Jesus, right? To say that he's not just a servant of Jesus, doing what Jesus wants, trying to model the life of Jesus, but saying, I am not knowable. I am not me. I am not Peter, except through Jesus. Jesus. I mean how, how have we ever have you ever thought of yourself as that that I am not Jeremy except through Jesus that there is no Jeremy apart from Jesus that there is no Sam or Silas or Cohen or Lily apart from Jesus Peter is unknowable apart from his connection his relationship to Jesus that's how he describes himself first and foremost as one who is known only through Jesus. And just as a side note, it's really interesting. He, the, the, he says, he calls himself Simon Peter um, or Simeon Peter, if like if, depending on your translation. And so he uses both a Greek and, and um, uses a Hebrew name Simeon, and he uses his Greek um, translation of what, 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 um, what Jesus called him, Peter the Rock. And so he's kind of combining these two things already in the name. So he's like saying, like, hey, listen, um, um, my wholeness, um, my connection with you as, as Greek believers, um, it comes because of my connection to Jesus, my being known by Jesus. And we see that played out, because then he says this in the next, he says, I'm not only a servant, but I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is one simply sent, right? Um, sent on a mission by someone in authority, and therefore has significant authority, not in himself, but in that he belongs to and acts in accordance with and step with under the authority of the one who has sent him. An apostle is one who is sent, sent on a mission, sent to accomplish something, to do something on behalf of the one who sends him. And so as he is one who is sent and to do this work, he does it from the authority, from the position, from the honorable state, not in and of himself, but what has been given to him by the one who sends him. And so Peter pulls himself into this, frames himself into this way of like, I am only knowable in relationship to Jesus. In a term that feels like a really low term, right? Slave, servant. But then at the same time, as he knows himself only in relation to Jesus, he's elevated in this term apostle. One who with authority and honor acts on behalf of Jesus. And so Peter is not... (laughs) He's not caught up in all of the, um, I mean, just all the stuff that happens in our society of like who he is. He's not who he is because he says who he is. He's who he is because Jesus says who he is. He's not who he is because of what he can do or what he can't do. He's who he is because of who Jesus has said he is and can do as an apostle, as one who's been sent on behalf of Jesus, who assumes he has everything he needs to be able to accomplish the thing that he was sent to do. He's not, he's not pulled by the id and the ego of our psychology, right? Like he's saying, like, I am grounded in Jesus and that keeps me stable. It's not just in me, in me I know myself, but I know myself because Jesus is in me, because I am connected to Jesus in relation to Jesus. All that in a first few phrases, right? First, first little introduction. And so Peter properly understands himself and his purpose as a human in relationship to Jesus. And guess what? He assumes his faith family does too. What he assumes about himself, he assumes for his faith family. Let's keep reading. He says, to those who have obtained, and the idea there is like reception. We'll talk about it in just a second. But obtained a faith of equal standing or better of equal preciousness or value with ours. So two things. First, faith is received. The idea. Is sometimes we hear the word "obtain" and we think it's something that's earned, right? Like maybe, like um, uh, we think, okay, like he got to a certain position to where faith became like actual for him, that, that he got there. But the the term uh, it actually literally means to receive by lot or divine will. So it's 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 meant to. Picture Again, remember, he's writing to a Greek, a Greek context. He's meant to picture something like this. Like, say, um, the giving of the obtaining of an unbreakable shield, like the one that Zeus gave Hercules in his battles. Or, maybe like the bag of wind that Aeolus gave Odysseus in order to contain the disfavorable winds so that he would always be led along his journey by the favorable winds. That's the idea of obtain. Or um, if, if you want a, a little more connectable, um, maybe it's a cloak of invisibility gifted to a young wizard that will help him discover all kinds of things along his unfolding journey. The image of gifts that will forever set one's life on a different course, not because they were seeking it. But at the desire of the divine patron, something is watching out for them, helping to guide them to, to, to be or to do what they were born to do, what they were meant to do, what they've set out to do. In this case, it's granted, faith is granted through Jesus. That faith is this gift that was given to us by Jesus in order to help us know and live out the journey to see success in the journey of our life. That's the, that's the image that Peter wants his his faith family, to pick up. That there is someone watching out for them, giving them what they need in order to be who they are meant to be, to accomplish what they were meant to accomplish in this life. That's the stories that they would have heard. That's the ideas that they were looking for. That's, that's what they all longed for. And Peter says, that's what you have. That is granted to you by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the divine patron who bestows the grift necessary to redirect your life and ensure the success of your quest, of your journey. And as we'll talk about, like, we'll, we'll get into that, because I, I know as Christians, listen, especially, we really, we, we, we get really um, hesitant when we start talking about success and um, prosperity and um, 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 fulfillment and all those kind of things because we know in some ways that kind of our own hearts are a little twisted and what we're after is a little twisted, right? So don't worry, like Peter understands that too. He gets that too and and he's like, listen, we'll get to that through Jesus also, right? So just run with it for a little bit, run with the story and the connection that Jesus is a patron who redirect, gives us what is needed, faith to redirect our lives and ensure the success of our quest, our journey, our personhood. He is, as the author of Hebrews says so plainly, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But not only is Jesus divine, is he God, he's a divine savior. One who, yes, rescues us from sin, but in the context, this context, and the word Peter uses for savior, is that Jesus is savior. Okay, again, go back with me into verse two. Or, sorry, verse one. By righteousness of God our savior. So we've obtained this faith, We've attained this faith through Jesus, who is God, who's divine. So again, he's connecting Jesus, again, to some of the more cultural stories of the divines operating within humanity to give them what they need in order to succeed in their quest, right? But then he calls Jesus Savior. And to our ears, if, I, if I'm honest, like generally we read Savior as saved from sins, Right? He rescues us from death. He rescues us from sin. And while that's certainly a part of it implied, in the, in the time that Peter writes, the term Savior was applied, first and foremost, to the gods as they rescued, as they gave these gifts, but also and primarily to Caesars. So like the gods of the Greek past and the Caesars of the Roman present, saviors were the ones who had the power to bring peace to establish order, to allow for prosperity. It's a whole vision of saving. Not just a rescue from, from a, a momentary like, distress, but the, but the idea of bringing a whole life. Saviors are the ones who could do that, because they had the power to do that. They, and their power was evident in that they could end wars, whether they be the Greek gods or whether they be the Roman Caesars. They, they, and therefore, as ones with such power to end wars, they could serve as great benefactors and bring peace and prosperity to the people. And this news of a war ended, this news of peace restored was called euangelion, the good news. That's the Greek for the good news. This ending of war, establishing of, of a benefactor for the benefit of the people was the good news. And Peter says that good news came through Jesus. Notice not only, though, is the faith this good news of who Jesus is, the divine, the one who who establishes peace, who ends the war. And we'll talk about the war as we go along. But ends the war and brings prosperity and peace to the people. But it's a faith. It's received, obtained, not by character, ability, or works, but by divine care. It is a faith of equal standing, preciousness, honorableness as ours. I mean, it's a pretty profound statement that Peter's making. Because Peter's not saying this in a Jewish-Gentile context. At least I don't think so, and I, and I think the, the, the historical evidence is, is against this. He's not saying it so much of like, hey, you Gentiles, um, you Greek believers, you're the same as us Jewish believers. Because he never goes back into this kind of Jewish-Greek um, difference the rest of the book. And he really didn't do a whole lot of it even in the first letter. He continues in this kind of equal footing that we have. And so the idea, I think, is this. Who is ours? The ours is those like Peter, those servant apostles who walked with Jesus face to face. What kind of faith does his faith family have? His faith. The same faith that, is, that, was, uh, that was given to him who got to walk with Jesus and see Jesus, as one who is known only in relation to Jesus and who is empowered by the very words of Jesus, the relation to Jesus, who's honored as an apostle of Jesus. That's the kind of faith he assumes every one of you have, and me as well. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Because how many of us would think that our faith is of equal measure to the apostles' faith? Yeah, What we've been given is, all that we need to have the same faith as Peter or Paul or John or any of those that we can come to mind, the ones we forget, Thomas and Matthew and all those. The same gift given to redirect Peter's life and ensure his journey of success was given to his faith family, each brother and sister in Christ. And Peter's desire is that what they share would abound, right? Right? That what they share in common, this faith in Jesus, this gifted faith for the success of their lives, the mission and the journey that they were on, the being sent by Jesus, known by Jesus, that that, what they have in common would abound. They would experience in abundance. We go to verse 2. It says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Master. Peter desires for favor and total well-being to be experienced all the days of the life of the faith family. He desires favor, grace, peace, total, whole well-being. It's shalom, total, whole well-being. End of war to be experienced in all the days of the life of the faith family. It's as if Peter is saying that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That just like the psalmist, he knows where Jesus has brought him. And he wants for his family to experience that same peace. And here's the kicker. Peter says that this experience, this abounding experience, this multiplying experience, this abundance of favor and peace comes through knowledge of God the Father and Jesus our Master. The one to whom we're apprenticed. But the term Peter uses for knowledge is not the usual word that we would think. Again, our English doesn't doesn't always do us justice in in some of the ways that we use words. But the knowledge here and the word that's used in the original language is not the knowledge that's primarily informational. It's not primarily informational knowledge. right? Like we know about Jesus. We know about God. We know the details of the law and of the history and the narratives and all those kind of things. There's, There's a part of that implied, but that's not it. But nor is it, and listen, this is important for us as a faith family, nor is it simply a personal knowledge of God. We talk a lot about knowing God personally, that we can hear God's voice, that God's actually made us to know him personally and intimately. That's absolutely true. But Peter uses a term that doesn't allow the idea of knowing to be intellectual, factual, nor merely personal. The term that he uses for for knowledge means this. It carries a picture of this, of coming to know someone for who they really are. It's a true knowing of God, who God truly is, and of Jesus, who he truly is, actually is. That the knowledge that allows us to abound and favor and in total well-being of God is not simply the facts of God, nor even the, merely the intimacy that we have with God, but the knowledge of actually who God is. And getting to really know who God and Jesus are, grace and peace come in abundance. That if we really know that God, is as Jesus described him, is like a father who's looking across the town, waiting for us to just turn towards him, so that he runs, making him full of himself, and saving us from all all the the horrible things that will happen as we walk through town because we've left. If we really know that God, if we really know God is the one who, even as dishonest managers who take advantage of grace and whom he blesses and are taking advantage of grace, if we really know that God, then grace and favor will abound. If, as the writer of, again, Hebrews, talks about that, that we really know God because we know Jesus, who Jesus was, how Jesus lived, what Jesus did for us, then we'll actually abound in favor and total well-being. There is an assumption of intimacy, yes, but an intimacy that is truly, authentically revealing not just a knowing about God or, or not just a communion with God, but knowing the character, the nature, the fullness, the breadth, the majesty and splendor of God. To abound is to know. To, as Jesus said in John's Gospel, to abide in his love and in his word, to take up residence with the one in a manner that all is exposed and not hidden. And getting to know who God and Jesus are really, we realize that, as we keep going in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That The more we get to know who God really is, we realize that through His divine power, we have all that we need for life and godliness. For life living and for a living that is in step in favor with God, that is pleasing to God. And listen, even the Greeks in their days wanted to live lives so that were pleasing to God, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of religion, right? It exists to some extent because we want to please God. And whether we want to please God so that our life doesn't go bad, or we want to please God out of some like some desire for Him or desire for more or whatever— Regardless, like that's what people were after. That's what his faith family was after. That's what you and I, I believe, are after. A life pleasing to God. Such knowledge of who God and Jesus are compels us to a life committed to this, to this living godliness. And for everything we need to live well, God has give to, given it to us. A life pleasing to God is given to us. All that we need for it. All that we need. Everything, everything granted is, that pertains to life and godliness is given to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellencies. So let's assume that that you want a life of godliness, that we want a life of godliness, the same as his people, um, Peter's the people he's writing to. Then there's no reason that each and every one of us cannot know ourselves and our purpose and find success in our calling. That there's no reason we can't experience it. That if we get to really know God, who God is, who Jesus is, And we'll experience the thing that we're after. The very thing that we want. That he's actually granted it to us. Everything that we need. He's not holding it from us. He's not keeping it from us. He's not some mischievous deity up there trying to keep us and trying to create a puzzle for life for us to figure out. He's making it plain and clear. That in knowing him and really knowing him, we have all that we need for life and godliness. To find success in our personhood and purpose, our calling. So what is our calling? We can go back into verse, verse 3. He says, like We find that we have all that we need in Jesus through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. What have we been called to? To Jesus' own glory and excellence. And listen, the word glory is important because throughout Scripture it has all kinds of different kind of pictures around it sometimes we think of showing gl- glowing lights right splendor beauty um sometimes we think of the presence of god as a glory glory right and that's there's there's validity to that in different places it uses that but in like especially paul's letters and we also see this in peter and i think this is why peter references back to paul at the end of his end of his letter um is that it this idea of glory um this is, is describing, to some extent, honor, um, honorableness in behavior. Like we think of an honorable person as being a glorious person, somebody who acts honorably as doing something worthy of glory. But the behavior that is honorable, is, is, it's honorable because it falls in step with the expectations of relationship. It, it falls into the step of what that person was meant to be or to do. In other words... It falls in line with, with the idea of righteousness, of relating rightly. So being called to Jesus' glory is this idea of living honorably into what we've been called into. We're, living rightly into our relationship with God, with one another, and with the world. That's the idea of glory here that we're supposed to share. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a statement of salvation in the sense of us being like rescued uh, from, um, from the world, but rather a statement of vocation in which we are redeemed, as we'll see in a second, from that which corrupts and are now to resume the task and vision in Psalms 8. The same psalm that Deidre read for us earlier. That the glory that Jesus calls us to, the glory that he shares with us, the glory that he wants for us, is to live into the vocation for which we are created. That what is humanity, man, that you, God, are mindful of him. The son of man, that you care for him. Remember, we talked about the son of man last month. This term that Jesus, this is the most common term that Jesus refers to himself as. And it's because it's a term that, that pulls in both divinity and humanity together. The, this ideal of humanity, of what humanity is meant to be. What is, what is humanity that you're mindful of them? The humanity in its idealness, in its image bearingness, that you care for him. You have made him yet a little lower than the heavenly beings in the SV. In the actual Hebrew, it's angels, it's divine beings, it's not just. Like, we, sometimes we think of heavenly beings as stars and, and sun and moon. That's not the idea. The idea is divine entities. You've made them only a little bit lower than divine entities and crowned him with glory and honor. There's that word again, glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field with the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What does that remind you of? Genesis 1. What God, in his goodness, spoke into life, humanity, and called humanity to. So when, it's, when Peter's saying that Jesus calls us into glory, he's calling us back into the very vocation in which we were created. The very thing that we are meant to be is humans. Both male and female. Humans. Jesus calls us back to our humanity, to our God-image, fashion-formed, equipped humanity. His glory as the Son of Man. And with His glory, He called us to His excellence. And we'll talk more about excellence next week, but let me just say this. The the term excellence, which is the first term that Peter will use in verse 5 to kind of begin this this, um, explanation of what we functionally do in order to live off of this reality, live in this reality, is a term in some ways, it's supposed to capture the idea of craftsmanship. This idea of, of committed life to a set of skills that allows us to, to, to be the very best in our vocation. <laughs> to, to function the best in our vocation. To, to be able to use the resources and limitations of, of what it is that we are vocationally doing to the best of the ability. That's the idea of excellence. Excellence. That Jesus calls us back into our humanity, but not just back into our humanity, generally back into our humanity that, that actually owns this thing that we're called to be as humans, as image bearers. To work at it and to build up the skills and the knowledge and the know-how necessary to be good craftsmen. To be ones who could therefore pass on our craft to others. The important thing to note today is that everything we need, we've been given by the one who called us to his glory and excellence. His divine power has granted us these things. Not you, not your ability, not your inability, not your character, not your history, but his divine care and wisdom have granted us the invisibility cloak, the resurrection stone, the elder one. I know it's a poor analogy. But in everything needed to succeed and through which we can discover who we really are, and put an end to the war in which we're a part of. To be peacemakers in the way that Jesus calls us to Matthew chapter 5. We are gifted, called by faith to a life like Jesus, a life of craftsmanship, of excellence, in the practice of our master of being whole and holy humans in the image and eternity of God here and now. Because listen, this calling is not merely an eternal calling, but it's a temporal calling a calling to life that we are made for and for which our hearts actually ache. This is what he says in verse four. Not only has God, Jesus' divine power granted us all things we need for life and godliness, and through knowing who he really is, we discover our calling to his calling, but, but through his divine power, he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In the ESV it translated it having escaped but the idea is there and escaping it's this idea of like you've been you become partakers of divine nature and your escape like it's a continuous thing like there's an initial escape but there's like this continuous escaping so having escaped seems a little bit too far done like and if as believers we know that we really haven't escaped corruption fully, right? Like, we, we struggle with our, our own corruption a little bit. And so, like, the, the term in the original language wouldn't have had this, this idea of finalitude yet. It would have been this process of escaping. Like, this idea that you're free from it, but you're having to experience over time the freedom in it, right? And so, and escape from the corruption that is in the world because of desire. Sinful, evil, whatever your translation says in there is not in the original text, But it's put there because that's what we tend to think of, right? We tend to think of our twisted desires as believers. So why wouldn't he be implying twisted desire? But as we talked about last week, the idea of desire is not that um, um, the desire is not the thing that's corrupted. It's the corruption that comes from desire. It's desires that are off of what they should be. And that as ones who develop our desires in relationship, that we cannot help but desire what we are in relation to that the thing that changes our desire is who we're in relationship with. Who has Peter said we're in relationship with? Who is he a slave to, a servant to? And so in his being owned and known, fully devoted to Jesus, his desires become Jesus' desires. So he escapes from the desires that are just given by the world around him. Not all of them evil, not all of them bad, but... All of them at times can be corrupting, right? Can get us off the mark to some extent. But here's the point. Peter's first letter was all about the precious and very great promises granted to us in Jesus. And he doesn't rehash them here. And so I'm not going to either. If you're curious about all those great promises, very precious promises, things that Peter said are absolutely unshakable, that need to be the foundation, go back and read the first letter. Stay in the first letter for a while. Read the Gospels. They're all there. Peter assumes that you've heard it, you've got it, your foundation's there. So he jumps into, what are you building on the foundation already laid? A foundation that ensures that his fellow Jesus followers will have all they need to become partakers of divine nature, escaped or are escaping from the corruption of life brought to them. Two quick things. Partaking in the divine nature is not primarily talking about our union with Christ through the Holy Spirit or even covenantal imagery. Like We tend to, to read this as First Peter letters, as people who have been in the church for a while, we read this. It's like, oh, he's just talking about having the Holy Spirit or being in the covenant relationship with Jesus. Those things are certainly implied to some extent. But remember who he's writing to. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ whose stories um, don't come from that story. The natural way of thinking isn't to think that they, that they somehow relate to God through a Holy Spirit indwelling. Their idea of divine partaking is this, this idea not so much of union and relationship, um, but rather birth connection, um, rather where they've come from. And so Peter's actually speaking to the heart of his brothers and sisters. And he invokes a language that what they are after in life is found only and already in Jesus. He's trying to, to hit them where their life stories would have hit them. And so, again, he's writing to Greeks, and at least one of those stories um, of identity and purpose, of hope and expectations, has formed the, the Greek culture of the first century pretty, pretty profoundly. Um, and the phrase that Peter uses comes from this story directly. Like this phrase, the divine nature, partakers in divine nature, is not found anywhere else uh, in our New Testament letters. But it is found in Plato's story, his never-finished story, of the story of Atlantis, um, and I know that seems weird. We're talking about Plato at church, and I get it like this isn't class. I'm not trying to inform you on it. But, there's, but this is the story that would have, that would have been the expectation of, of the people as they were listening to Peter talk about Jesus, like their understanding of, who, of, of divinity and relationship to the divinity. And so the story kind of goes like this. So um, Atlantis was formed um, in this kind of twisted way. I don't want to get into all the twistedness of it, but Poseidon um, 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 because he out um, of really beautiful part of this land um, that um, he really was infatuated with this woman. Her um, her husband died, so Poseidon decided to make her his wife. They had two or five sets of twins. Um, they became kings. But what happened is is Poseidon basically like just kind of cut this land off of the rest of the land. Kind of became its own little world, its own Eden. It became the perfect place. Like it was established in a way, geometrically, mathematically, like perfect in all sorts of ways. Um, all the kinship of the people on the place was uh, kinship to Poseidon, to the divine. So there were human and divine relationships. And in the story of Atlantis, they achieve. Um, great prosperity. They, they advanced in technology and advanced in civilization above all the others who are still connected to the land, right? They're kind of, they're in, if you can imagine, it's like this, this main land, it's an uh, island like in the center, and then there's concentric circles of water and then land and then water and then land. They built these tunnels and bridges to connect them all. And again, it's this idea of like almost like the perfect world, almost Eden, right? And and so like they, they advanced in every way, and here's, what, here's how, how the, they're described. And See if you can listen to any of the parallels in our stories of faith, in Peter's story of Jesus. See if you can listen to any of this. See if you can see what Peter's trying to get at when he says partakers of divine nation. For many generations, as long as besides nature was vigorous enough in them, that is, as long as within them they're, they were more divine, or at least enough divine as they were human, They obeyed the laws and were on good terms with the gods who they were kin. Because the principles they held were true and perfectly high-minded, and because they reacted with self-possession and practical intelligence to the vicissitudes of life and to one another, they looked down on everything except virtue. Sounds pretty good, right? Because of their divine connection, they looked down down on everything except virtue. They counted their prosperity as trivial and easily bore the burden, so to speak, of the mass of their gold and other possessions. They were not made drunk by the luxury their wealth afforded them. They remained in control of themselves and never stumbled. As sober men do, they saw clearly that even prosperity is enhanced by the combination of mutual friendship and virtue. And the wealth declines and friendship is destroyed by materialistic goals and ambitions. A lot of things that we would agree with, right? <laughs> like, these are the good things to be after. As a result of this kind of reasoning and of the persistence of the divine nature within them, They thrived in all the ways I've described. But when the divine portion within them began to fade, as a result of constantly being diluted by large measures of mortality, and their mortal nature began to predominate, they became incapable of bearing their prosperity and grew corrupt. In other words, the more they became, in the Greek idea, the more they became attached to the material things of the world, the more they became human, and the less they became like the divine, the more they became infatuated with the things they had, they wanted the things that other people had, and they began to be separated by greed and by lust, and be destroyed by corruption. Anyone with eyes to see could mark the vileness of their behavior as they destroyed the best of their valuable possessions. Anybody could see that this was, this was going in a wrong direction, right? But those who were blind to the life that truly leads to happiness regarded them as having finally attained the most desirable and enviable life possible now that they were infected with immoral greed and power. So the irony of what happens in the story of Atlantis is the more they become like humans, the more they begin to divide their relationships, they begin to long and to lust, desire for things, and corrupt the society in which they were living. But the irony of it is that those who could see it saw it clearly for what it was, but those who couldn't actually thought that what they were doing was the very best thing. They were actually after the best life. That what they were after in their immortal greed and in their mortal lust for power and for things was the very happiness of life. This is what the Greek idea of, of, of divine nature meant. A, like if you're connected with the divine, then you can live in a way that is somewhat altruistically, right? That somewhat allows you to be at peace. And that's what Peter's after, too, when he says it. But he's going to say it in a way that's different, because the rest of the story goes that, um, that Zeus sees this, and he wants to end this corruption, and he does so because, by punishing, by destroying Atlantis, by wanting to bring harmony by destroying the, the very people that are the ones who are out of harmony. But here's the thing. What did what did John's gospel that remember that verse we quoted? John three sixteen? What did why did Jesus come? He came to save? Yeah. What do you got, Sam? That's right. God came to save sinners. He sent his son to save us, right? He sent his son not to judge the world, but to save the world. The irony of, again, what Peter's trying to get at, and listen, the reason I tell this story isn't, isn't for any reason that, okay, now you need to go and read Greek philosophy, and you'll understand why the world is the way it is. But, but the idea here is this, is that even in the Greek world, even in their world, they, they knew that something was off in the world that they were in. And the way back to it was a somehow connection to divine nature, into being in relationship with God. But the way the Greeks thought about being in relationship to God was the way that everyone thinks about being in relationship to God. It was through law. It was through obedience. It was through destruction, being, letting punishments happen to us, so therefore we have to sacrifice more. But, but the story of scriptures is a different story. The story tells the same story, that like we screwed up Eden. like We are we're out of it. We got cast out. We're, we're, we're far from it now. But instead of destroying, God dies. He sends his son. That what we're actually after in life, the, a life in which we're not pulled by the, the lust and greed and corruption of desire, the things that, that, that draw us out of harmony with ourselves, with one another, with the world, isn't simply by following our rules or laws, but is already done for us in Jesus. And the more that we know God through Jesus and what Jesus has done, the more we live out of the reality of what Jesus has done, the more we get to experience, once again, again, writing to the Greeks, the union of God with them, the partaking of divine nature, the fullness of their humanity in its prosperity, abundance, and for the good. I know we, maybe this seems a little too intellectual, uh, and forgive me for that. But the, I, the idea, then this is what I hope you can, we can walk away with today and kind of dive into this week, is that, listen, everything that your heart aches for, the prosperity of life, the success of life, the goodness of life, um, and, and not just in like a shallow way, but a really deep way, everything that you were made to want and long for, all that you were made to do and to be, is known in Jesus, in your relationship to Jesus. And if we believe that, if we rest in that, if we're willing to, as Peter will say next week, put that belief into into life, to raise to life the faith that we've been granted by His divine power, the faith that's been given to us by Jesus' righteousness, then we'll experience richly the provision of entrance into the kingdom of God. We'll experience richly all that we long for. And life really is, in some ways, that straightforward. If we just look to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I I thank you for um, the clarity that comes through Jesus to... Um, that we can, as Peter said, know in knowing you, and knowing you through Jesus. We have all that we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, if, if what I said, especially in this last part, was confusing or distracting, I pray that that would just be removed from memory and what would hit home, Father, Lord, what would allow to rest in our hearts, Father. Lord, is your care and love for us that as we sing earlier, and that if we look back at our lives, what was given to us over and over at every step, Father, Lord, was what we needed. And that we can believe that will be the same tomorrow. Thank you for grace that abounds. In your son's name. Amen.